Welcome to our midweek study. Um, if you will, turn with me in your Bibles. I don't have any announcements, and it feels great. You might think I like to add stuff. I don't. I don't want to add anything. I just want to get in the Word of God. But there's things, important things. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. It's been a while since I've done a verse-by-verse on a Wednesday night. It feels almost like a foreign language to me, but it's good to be back. So let's pick it up with verse 1. No more intro. Just get right into it. 13 chapters of the 13th chapter. Not, we're not going to cover all 13 tonight, but I just, for context's sake, uh, let's read them together. Though I speak with the tongues of men and angels, but have not love, I have become a sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. And although I have the gift of prophecy, I understand all mysteries and all knowledge. Though I have all faith so that I could mo- remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, but have not love, it profits me nothing. Love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself, is not puffed up, does not behave rudely, does not seek his own, is not provoked, thinks no evil, does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. But whether there are prophecies, they will fail. Whether there are tongues, they will cease. Whether, they, whether there is knowledge, it will vanish away. For we know in part, we prophesy in part, when that which is perfect has come, then that which is in part will be done away. When I was a child, I spoke as a child. I understood as a child. I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. For we see in a mirror dimly, but now face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know just as I am known. And now abide faith, hope, love. These three. But the greatest of these is love. Let's pray again. Father, we thank you for this Wednesday evening. Thank you for bringing us here. Thank you for those that are watching online. Thank you for this chapter. Thank you, Jesus, that you are the personification of love. Thank you for your love poured out that we just got to worship and sing. Thank you, Jesus, that we can know your love through salvation. Thank you for this time. I pray your Holy Spirit would give me the strength, the wisdom, the understanding, the anointing. You distract, uh, remove every distraction in this place that we could be settled and peacefully hearing the Word of God from the one who gave it, your Holy Spirit. And Lord, once again, remove me from the equation that we all might hear from you alone. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Many things in life can be overstated. Like, the Super Bowl is amazing. I like football, but it's really not. A lot of them are duds to to be, you know, I mean, you watch some of them, you're like, uh, when's the commercials at least? But the importance of love, as defined by the Word of God, cannot be overstated. In fact, regardless of what we know of love, we can all use a deeper appreciation of love, which is precisely why we're 
here these next three weeks to look at this pivotal chapter. Paul will actually conclude this letter to the Corinthians in his final exhortations and farewell with a triple-pronged reminder. Now, mind you, everything Paul writes is by the express leading of the Holy Spirit. But he has this triple-pronged reminder of love's place and importance. I'll put it up on the screen, these three verses that you can see. Starting with verse 14, you can even turn there if you want to in your Bible because it's probably one page over. You're in 1 Corinthians 13, this is 1 Corinthians 16, so you don't have to be all that quick on this one. Just probably one page, and you'll be looking at these three verses that I have on the screen, though. Uh, but 1 Corinthians 16, 14, let all that you, be, let all that you do be done in love. I'm going to put my glass on because I can't see from here. Uh, 1 Corinthians 16, 22. If anyone does not love the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be accursed. What a powerful verse, huh? Oh, Lord, come. And then lastly, the 24th verse. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. So it's not just the 13th chapter where there's this emphasis of love. Even the, even the conclusion of this epistle Paul's fellow apostle, the apostle John, he wrote these revealing and instructive words related to love and the essence of God. 1 John 4, 8. He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. Nobody can say, I, I know God, I love God, I just don't love people. No. Now, as we look at this chapter and elsewhere in Scripture, it's with an understanding that generally speaking, again, generally speaking, there are some people out there who say, I hate everybody. Generally speaking, most people agree that love is really important. And that it's really needed in this world. And that it's needed in our individual lives. Most people want to be loved. I know there's people who have gotten so hard that they don't care anymore. But it's a place people get to. In 1965, I wasn't born. I was four years later. Some of you guys remember this, though. There was a song that debuted from Jackie DeShannon titled, What the World Needs Now is Love sweet love. Some of you, the tune's right in your mind now. You won't get it out tonight. You'll be thinking about it at 1 a.m. Thanks a lot. But there's worse tunes you could have, right? What the world needs now is love, sweet love. You know, right? It was later released, re-released by Dionne Warwick. That's where I heard it. The title of the song is true, though. The main chorus is accurate. And it actually agrees with the premise of Scripture. The world does need love. This world definitely needs it. It needed it in 1965, and 75, and 85, and 95, and 2005, and 2015, and right now. The world needs love. And you know, there's been an untold number of books, songs, articles, movies about love. Probably more than we can, I mean, do a search and it'll just keep coming. We'll hear and see plenty about the word love related to Valentine's. That's next Monday, guys. Just 
If it means... Thankfully, in my house, we've been liberated from Valentine's. Every day is Valentine's at our house, so we don't really care anymore. I mean, really, I, I, I say that jokingly, but really, me and my wife are like, I don't really need them to tell us a day. The only good thing about this year in Valentine's, in my perspective, is it fell on a Monday, although now that ruins, because we like to go out on our dates on Monday and Tuesday, and now we definitely won't, because everybody else is going out on Monday. So that's the way we view Valentine's. But don't let me taint it for you. If it's a big day for you and you're looking forward to chocolate and all the other things like that, go for it. That's fine. But um, we'll hear plenty about the word love related to Valentine's and advertising. It's been called, love's been called the universal language. You know, it breaks down language barriers and, and we're all familiar with the societal slogans uh, that have come. Uh, you've heard some of them, probably all of them. All you need is love. You heard that one, right? All you need is love. Love, not war. That's a, that's a big one. See it on protest and feel the love. That's another one that, uh, that people have. Feel the love. Here's one that's in the modern last few years. Love is love. And these are slogans that we hear in our society. The world expresses a desire to know and experience love. And as it desires love, it then creates, this is the world around us, because it desires love, it then creates, we're all creating the image of God, and since God is love, there's going to be some desire to have that aspect, even if it's counterfeited. Does that make sense? Because we're creating the image. That's why, if you can't have a Christ, you get an antichrist. There's always going to be a substitute for the real thing. And so the world's desire for love, with that desire, it creates and defines a concept of love that is based according to feelings, culture, consensus, and the world's values, which change over time and depending on where you're at in the world. Some of the values in the Middle East are not our values. Some of the values in parts of Africa are different than other parts of the world. Some of the values in Europe... Some of them are consistent, but some of them are different. And so, these definitions... But God sits way above all those, doesn't he? He's got one definition that applies to everybody. But unless our definition and our understanding of love comes from God, and our acceptance and then our application of what God describes uh, as love to be, unless we accept what he says and then apply it in our lives... Well, we're going to have something, but it will be incomplete at best, completely false, and destructive at worst. Does that make sense? Incomplete at best, downright destructive at worst, if it's not really love in the purity and power of God's love that he describes in the scriptures. If you're taking notes, you see the title this morning, Love what it isn't and what it is. We'll be looking at this the next three weeks, what it is and what it isn't. Uh, tonight's is really focused on uh, the essential presence of love, the essential presence of love. This is part one. As we launch into this study, take note that 1 Corinthians was written to believers, a church of believers, just like it could have been written to Calvary Chapel Richmond or to all the believers in Richmond. 
That's what we're looking at. It was written to a specific group of believers. They happened to be in Corinth. And I'm speaking tonight, whether you're online or here in the service, uh, I'm suspecting I'm speaking, if not exclusively, especially on a Wednesday night. Now, by the way, I do hope in the future, side note, I hope in the future that our Wednesday night services, we see people get saved even on Wednesday nights. One of the awesome outpouring, outpouring of the Spirit of God at Calvary Chapel, Fort Lauderdale, where we got saved, there's people got saved there on Wednesday night, not just Sundays. Because a lot of times when, if the church grows by God's grace, you'll have people that, they say, I'm a waitress and I work every Sunday, but I'm off Wednesdays. And you can, that's what we did. We would invite friends, we would invite another friend, say, I, I, I can't come Sunday, I watch the Dolphins on Sunday. Who do you watch on Wednesday? Nobody. Come on with us then, right? That was another way. You could get people, I won't give up a Sunday, but I will give up a Wednesday night because it's nothing but reruns, and so I'll come. Back when we had reruns. Now you have Netflix and all this other stuff. My kids don't even understand. What is, what is a rerun? You know. <laughs> but you get the point, so good opportunity uh, as we continue to invest. But, uh, but for the most part, a lot of times Wednesday nights are believers, and I'm speaking primarily to believers. First Corinthians was written to believers. And why that is important is for two reasons. Number one, well, there's more than two reasons, but two that I'll give you. Number one, it's important that if 1 Corinthians was written to believers, and we're a bunch of believers, Christians are, number one, Christians are human beings, and like everybody else, we also can forget what God said. We can forget what God said about love, or we've not yet been properly trained in what God has said about love. So we can either forget what we did know, or we've never been trained in it in the first place. We've been saved, we've been changed, but we've forgotten some things, or we haven't been trained with some things. And so the Word of God always reminds. Peter said it three times during his first book. I remind you, I remind you, I remind you. Number two, Christians, those of us here, those of us online, Christians, because we all live in this fallen world. Can I get an amen on that? We live in it. We're familiar with it. We're too familiar with it sometimes. We want to get out of it. If we could pick the rapture time, we would have said yesterday. But because we live in a fallen world, we can also unknowingly start to adopt the world's views and values and expressions of love, which really aren't love, and there can be this slow erosion and a subtle mind shift even among the people of God, which is why it's imperative that we always revisit the plumb line. Uh, I spent two summers framing houses back when I was in high school. I got the most ripped I'd ever been, you know, and not because they gave me the grunt work of carrying around, but every now and then I got to hold the chalk line or something like that and do something, and you would have a plumb line, there would be a weight there, and it would make sure that you got level. And the Word of God always gets us level. It's that plumb line of God's truth and His, revel His revelation of love. Not our imagination of it, not our definition of it, but His revelation of of love. So the word, the second thing that the word, no, the word reminds and the word protects. Amen? So it's a reminder. It's like, oh yeah. It's like uh, those 
three little instructions before you get on a con call or something like that. Make sure my video is turned off. Make sure I'm sorry. <laughs> All these things like, because if you don't, something bad can happen. You know, you just, uh, you know, it's not that big a deal if a kid runs in, but um, you never know. Somebody decides to say something in the background. That wasn't supposed to, you know. Follow the, so you have the reminder and you also have the protection. Now with that said, um, if a non-believer were to sit in on this study tonight, next Wednesday, the Wednesday after, so you say, well, since most of you are believers, I don't think I'll invite an unsaved friend. No, you still could. If a non-believer sat in on this study, and I would say every study for the Bible, God can speak to a non-believer. Isn't that great? Because it's quick and it's powerful and it's sharper than a two-edged sword. It could be an entire message, totally believers, and the Holy Spirit blocks out everything to them except for what pricks their heart. So if a non-believer would sit in, this, sit in this series, in this study, I have no doubt that the Lord could and would speak to them too. A, because the scriptures are powerful, far and away. I could just read 1 Corinthians 13, sit down, and God could do something with it far beyond anything I could ever do teaching it. Number, uh, number two, or B, because what's written to believers as instructions and doctrine simultaneously. So what's written to believers, it simultaneously reveals the deep flaws in the world's views and the world's outcomes. Because their views and outcomes are one thing, they say one thing, and then when you actually compare them to the truth of God's word, you say, one of these is actually working and one is not. So that's also a revelation. You have the contrast. Now regarding this 13th chapter, which is our text tonight and will be our text the remaining of the next three Wednesdays in February, um, does the chapter known as, you probably heard this chapter referred to this way, known as the love chapter, there's other ones that you could say that about, but this one probably more than any other chapter in the Bible is known as the love chapter. I was doing some premarital counseling uh, this week and I was talking to the young couple and I said, look, uh, this chapter is actually read at a lot of weddings. You've probably heard people read it, you know, either the pastor or someone comes up and does a reading, even at a wedding. It's called the love chapter, at least as long as I can remember. But depending, but do you, do you believe, those of you that are here tonight, those of you that are listening online, do you believe that this chapter depends on the context of chapter 12 and 14, and for that matter, the whole epistle so does it, do you believe that this chapter depends on the context of chapter 12, chapter 14, so that it's in the middle of those two, and the rest of the epistle as a whole, or, or does the chapter have a wider application? You know the answer to this. Yes. Yes. It does depend on chapter 12 and chapter 14 and the wider epistle, and yes, it has a wider application than just that. Always, 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 the text is tied to the context. That never changes. The text is always tied to the context. But at the same time, this chapter, like other passages in Scripture in the Bible, where you'll see chapters, some of these in the Old Testament, for example, but some of them are in the New as well, uh, where a hymn or a prayer or a praise is inserted 
And it almost looks like in a lot of times your Bible italics, not always italics, but it's inserted a prayer, a praise, or a hymn, and it's kind of buttressed on both sides by other parts of that same chapter. So the context, uh, and, and those sections have quite a bit of teaching on their own apart from the context, but you still don't separate them from the context. So the context is particularly relevant here um, and, in, and, and instructive as well for us as a church and us as a church fellowship and as a body of believers that we would be, like the Corinthians uh, were endeavoring to, to glorify Christ, to serve one another, and to bring the light of the gospel to the world around us. So as it was instructive to that body of believers, it's instructive to us as a body of believers. So we'll, throughout the next three weeks, we'll keep the context in mind throughout it as it relates to the church as a living body, a living organism. Paul is writing this 13th chapter to a living body of believers that they would become more alive Right? Because sometimes you can be alive and barely alive. People in the hospital, in the ICU, some of them are alive, but barely alive. And Paul's like, no, no, I want you to not be barely alive, but living. And so the context will keep that in mind. But there's also the guidance for our individual growth. You personally, me, Tim, my wife, Sarah, you know, even if we were miles apart, God still wants us to be growing individually. So there's also the guidance for our individual growth and our individual discipleship as well as our collective discipleship and personal relationships such as marriages, interpersonal relationships, marriages, relationships within the family unit along with the clear differences uh, between God's teaching on love versus our Tendencies. Our tendencies don't necessarily uh, match up with God's definition of love. Does that make sense? Our tendencies are not love. Our tendencies are self. Uh, our habits are, are assumptions. And again, we also want to also be able to identify the world's preferred or pseudo-definitions of love versus authentic love. So our three-week focus, if you take a look at the, um, on the screen there, our three-week focus, again, starts tonight with part one, the essential presence of love, which is just verses one through three. We read the whole 13 verse just so you'd see the context of it. If we had more time, it would be instructive to even read chapter 12 and chapter 14. That's homework for you. You can go read chapter 12 and 14. And if you're a speed reader, you can read the whole book and, and come back. And some of you can do that no problem. And you know, read two chapters a day and... That's uh, 16 chapters. I mean, what, we have 13. Yeah, so we have 16 chapters, so you need to read an extra chapter somewhere in there if my math is correct. So nevertheless, uh, next week we'll have the effective outworking of love, and then in the last and final week, the enduring impact of love. And you see it broken up uh, in the verses there. How essential... Now, again, tonight we're looking at um, the essential presence of love, how essential do you believe the presence of love is? How essential? Do you believe it's essential? Because we can use the word essential for things that are not essential. Right? It's essential that we have Disney Plus. Right? Not essential. Might not even be beneficial. 
But, uh, you know, all kinds of things can be... It's essential that I have dessert every single night. No, it's probably not essential. Right? <laughs> Tastes great, but it's not necessarily essential. Again, I'm attracted to dessert every night, but it's not essential. But how essential is the presence of love? See if these three passages, we, if we define something the Bible calls essential we should be able to find it visibly essential in the Bible. Does that make sense? If we call it essential, it should be very clear in the Scriptures that it's not a pastor saying it's essential, that it's God saying it's essential. So let's take a look. Here's three verses I bet all of you know really well. The first one, Deuteronomy uh, 6.5, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and with all your strength. You shall... Give God a little bit of time. Tip him with your time. Make yourself available every now and then. No, love the Lord your God. Number two, Leviticus 19. You, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Not tolerate your neighbor. Love your neighbor. I am the Lord. And then John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever should believe in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Everyone's heard these three verses. They are essential anchors in the entirety of Scripture. Love is essential to our being saved, right? If God did not so love, we couldn't be saved. So we know it's that essential. If God did not love, there is no salvation. So we know it's essential to our being saved. But it's also essential to our now living saved because once we are saved, we're called to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We're called to love our neighbor as ourselves, and that's not easy to do. In other words, if God, if he did not so love sinners like us, we'd stay dead in our trespasses and sins. We could not be saved. We desperately, we desperately, more than we understand, more than we, many, not many, I'd say every truth in the Bible is far beyond how deep we should comprehend it. We get like an inkling of it. So if I say we desperately need his love, it's more than I can really, a lot of times I don't feel that I desperately need it, but the scriptures tell me I desperately need his love. And we need his love to believe in his son. That free gift of salvation. If God did not love, then there is no free gift of his son. But those that belong to him, the true worshipers, you say, well, that's an Old Testament passage. There's actually two up there, right? Those are Old Testament passages. How does that apply to the New Testament? Well, when Jesus was walking the earth, there was no New Testament. He taught everything from the Old Testament. Genesis through Malachi. And when Jesus spoke of the true worshipers in John chapter 4, which we covered back in the fall, um, that they were called to love, that love is to be pointed towards God the Father. Our love is to be pointed in the direction of God the Father. If we do not love God, guess what? We will not worship God. If we do not love God, we're not going to worship God. 
And in mirroring his character, he also then calls us to love each other with our flaws, with our prickly parts, with our issues. We're called to love each other. Again, not just to tolerate one another. The world can do that. Actually, they don't do it well anymore. They used to be tolerant. Now there's a lot less tolerance of any other opinions, any ideas that's not exactly in their little stovepipe. But nevertheless, we're called to love each other. And we'll get into the outworking of love next week. I don't really have time to get into that tonight. Tonight is really basic definitions, if you will. But next week is looking at that outworking, which really picks up in verse 4, where Paul really starts to show this is what it looks like. We know it's essential. Now, what does it look like uh, is, is more of next week. And obviously, um, two of the passages, as I mentioned, they're from the Old Testament. Uh, but Jesus taught those two, as he said, those two, all the law and the prophets hang on those two. You guys know that Jesus said that, right? So he said that on two, love God with all your heart and love your neighbor as yourself. Because all the law can hang, it can rest on those two anchors. In fact, it does. Now, in the New Testament, we're told, we're told in more than one place, but two places you can write down if you're taking notes, at Hebrews 8.10 and Hebrews 10.16, it says, with the salvation that comes through faith in Jesus Christ, through the shed blood of Jesus, and calling on him by faith and receiving his grace, with that, it says the law is then written on the tablets of our hearts. So the law is still good, Nobody can keep it but Christ. And then now, once you have the Holy Spirit, we desire to do those things which are the moral and not the ceremonial. We don't have, we're not under that anymore. I, you, know, you don't have to do animal sacrifices. But the moral parts of the law, to love your neighbor, to not lie, to not commit adultery, to love God, to not follow idols. Those things, those moral obligations, he's written them in our heart and we now love that because we love him. Because he first loved us. And so those are written on the tablets of our heart. So the Old Testament, New Testament, Testament, they become folded in as one. The New Covenant is then walked out. It's spelled out a lot of times in the Old Testament and then it's walked out in the new covenant it's walked out and that's to shine out through love and jesus and later the apostles they build i've got some passage up here jesus and the apostles will later build on the essential aspect of love in our personal walk and in our fellowship with god you can look at each of these first john 4 11 beloved if god so loved us we ought to love one another that's axiomatic right if god loved us He's calling us to love one another. It's logical, as we've seen in uh, Romans 12, 1. Uh, John 6, 34 and 35, Jesus speaking. Uh, he says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. In other words, in the Ten Commandments, it wasn't spelled out that way, but Jesus is getting more uh, direct and saying, this new commandment, as I have loved you, that you also love one another by this all men will know that you are truly my disciples if you have love for one another. And that will become more and more 
of a shining light in the day and age we live in because people aren't even nice to each other, much less love one another. I mean, it used to be there was a common decency of nice, not always. I mean, I'm t we've had issues every decade and every generation, but I mean, there's a pervasiveness now of just a bitter spirit more and more. And so Jesus said, as it would show up in the Roman Empire and it will show up in our time, that this love for one another will be a light. And then 1 Peter 4, 8, and above all things, this, you can see this being so important in a marriage context and a church context and different ministries that kind of get in each other's way or whatever it may be. Uh, and above all things, have fervent love for one another, for love will cover a multitude of sins. I like that the bar is sin because um, if love can cover a multitude of sins, it can definitely cover a multitude of mistakes, which oftentimes aren't even sin. You ever notice that? If you spill the milk all over the kitchen floor, it is not a sin. But if some husband starts cussing out his wife or kids for such a thing like that, that's a mistake, not a sin. Now, it could be a sin if you said, I've told you not to pick that up. And the kid says, I did what I want. You know, that, but there, there's circumstances where it could be, but, but in a general sense. So if love can cover a multitude of sins, it can definitely cover mistakes. And we're all prone to mistakes. I forgot to pick that up at the dry cleaner. Thou sinner. Right. Now, you don't say that. Love covers a multitude. We're getting into a little bit of, uh, of next week's here uh, for just a second there. But love that love is essential in the plan and will of God, that love is essential in the nature of God and in the child of God and in the family of God is irrefutable. It's irrefutable that God desires his love to shine forth through his people. And according to his definition, his will, his plan of love. But what are we speaking of definition-wise of the love that God desires. So if we look at these three verses again, let's look at the three verses um, of chapter 13 that we're focused on tonight. Though I speak with the tongues of men and angels, but have not love, I have become sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. Nobody, I mean nobody, wants to have someone bring a, an iron pan up near your ear and just start banging on it. That's a way to turn love to hate real fast, right? You know, you do not want to be a clanging symbol. And though I give, and I'm sorry, and then I, though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I can remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned but have not love, it profits nothing. So we see the word love is used several times there. But what are we speaking of definition-wise of the kind of love that God desires? As many of you probably know, and those of you online, those of you here, maybe all of you know, but as many of you probably know, the New Testament was written in Greek. It was not written in English. It was not written in Spanish. It was not written in Cantonese. It was written, it wasn't even written in Hebrew. The New Testament was written in Greek. That was the common language of that time. So it was written in Greek, specifically Kine Greek, which was called the Common Greek. The Common Greek. And it became a dead language 
300 years after the death of Jesus. 300 years after the death of Jesus, Kine Greek just went away as a spoken and written language in that part of the world, in fact, all the world. But, but the Greek language was more specific, a lot more descriptive than the English language. In English, we have one word for love. We use it to talk about God, our spouse, ice cream, football teams, anything. We have one word for love, and it really doesn't apply to some of the ways we use it, does it? We don't really love. Well, I've even seen, uh, I was watching Food Network one time, and the guy says, I want to marry this meal. I'm like, you know, so maybe, maybe, just maybe, we, we've taken it to a whole other level. But as you probably know by now, and you probably heard, many of you have heard this, you've written a book, uh, the Greek language, the common Greek had four words, in the common Greek, four words for love, and here they are. If you haven't seen them in a long time, or you've not seen them ever, agape, phileo, storage, and eros. And agape, we'll take a look at them together uh, in order here. Agape is the word most used by far in the New Testament, like a, close to 110 times um, in the New Testament. By far, it's the most often of the Greek words for love. It's by far the most used. It conveys an unconditional, intentional, sacrificial love. Not, it's not feelings-based, uh, but it's the act of the will. That kind of sacrificial love that parents devote to their children when their child has thrown up all over the place at 3 a.m. Right? Y'all been there, right? I've, I remember distinctly some of these moments. I'm like, I love this child. I love this job. I love this family. Right? You know, you know. Agape. Phileo. Uh, it's used the second most, about one quarter of the time that uh, agape is used. And this word is used to describe Jesus' love for the disciples. It conveys a strong brotherly love, an affection for a close friend. David and Jonathan in the Old Testament are great examples of this. They were knitted together, deep friendship. Jesus wanted that friendship with all the apostles and wanted all the apostles to have that friendship with one another. The same as David and Jonathan had. Again, the Old Testament foreshadows things that we see in the New. Then you have storage. This word is only used two times in the New Testament. Both times it's used in the negative. What I mean by, well, the word speaks of the natural affection that parents have for their children and within families. That it's, that it's natural that brothers and sisters, it's a very natural thing that brothers and sisters would love each other. That, you know, you can say anything... Oh, I, here's how it works. I can say anything about my brother and sister, but no one on the outside can, right? That there's this natural bond, there's this natural love, there's this natural affection within a family that moms and dads naturally love their kids and don't want to abort them. They don't want, it's not natural to not have a natural affection to say, you know, we don't want this child. Or, and 
today's society, we see a lot of unnatural. So it was used in the negative. Why is that important as it relates to our society? Um, because it would be unnatural to just cast your kids aside. And so it's used in the negative in the New Testament. It says in Romans chapter 1 and then the other place, I forgot the passage, but uh, where Paul's speaking, I can't remember which epistle it is in Timothy, but he's speaking. In both cases, it is a sign of a society falling apart when there's not a natural affection in the family. So storage is only used to convey the negative impact of normally families love each other, but when a society breaks down, then parents don't care if, they, if their kids are on drugs and falling apart, as long as they're happy. And that would be unnatural. And that would be the sign of we're getting close to the end. It would be a sign of a society falling apart when there's not a natural love within the family. So the only time it's used, those two times, it's in the negative. Then eros, uh, the word is never used not one single time in the Old Testament or the New Testament. It was the Greek word for romantic love and or sexual love. It didn't have to be sexual, but romantic, you know, husband and wife holding hands all the way. Uh, to anything in the sexual realm, but it, it's where the word today erotic comes from. Uh, and we could have an a interesting discussion on why God omitted eros completely. Uh, well, given what the Greeks and Romans did to uh, sexual things that are now considered the norm in our modern day society, it kind of makes sense that God omitted that use of the word at all, not even in the negative just it's not even mentioned a single time. So it was used in that time period, but the Bible never mentions it. The Bible has its own great definitions of romance. Song of Solomon's a great one, uh, but different other places uh, and what God uh, values when it as it relates to romance and uh, the sexual context, which is only found in the marriage bed of a husband and a wife. So that word's not used at all. But the usage... And the context, the usage, whether you're talking about agape or phileo, which for all intents and purposes, they're the only two words used to convey love. Storage, again, is just showing that uh, it, it, we, the, the backdrop was understandable that family love would be natural. It would be not natural if it dropped off. But in, in, for all intents and purposes, uh, for the New, Tens New Testament, we're only really dealing with agape and phileo. Agape and phileo. It seems like, uh, you know, whatever reason, God, they don't need reminders about romantic. I've got that covered. And uh, by the way, the Valentine's theme, interestingly enough, in America, and I'm guessing around the world, but the Valentine's theme is almost all eros. It is all feelings-based. It is all holding hands. It is all... You know, um, romance all the way up to things that are off the wall. Uh, so the the focus in our country from an advertising standpoint is all eros, and yet the Bible doesn't even use the word. It has a deeper focus of love, doesn't it? A much, much more than our superficial society. And the Bible is very clear on what's acceptable and what's not. But um, when you think of the family affections, one more thing about storage, family affections, you can think of like Mother's Day and Father's Day. It would be natural that there would be a Mother's Day and Father's Day. And people, you know, for the most part, really do want to get mom a car and they really do want to take care of dad and make sure they can give him another tie and all that kind of stuff. And they really, there is that natural and that should be natural. 
And that's the focus. Uh, storage would be the focus of numerous sitcoms, family dynamics, family relationships. That would be many, many sitcoms would be uh, in our society. Uh, but again, agape and phileo, they're harder to find in our modern society, much harder to find, agape and phileo. Rich in the Bible, harder to find in our society, uh, and, but they're the most needed, agape and phileo. They're the most needed in our churches, in our families, in our communities, and in fact, the whole world. The two things that are most needed are the least found, and the two things that one is natural, and one, no one has to learn to like, you don't have to teach teenagers how to all of a sudden want to like somebody. In sixth grade, they start passing notes. Eros is covered. Storage is generally covered. God says, these two, y'all need a lot of work on. That's kind of the way, that's my kind of netting it out uh, kind of view of how this comes. So to this group of believers, this group of Corinthians believers, uh, that was supposed to be, Paul is writing to a group of believers that is supposed to be growing as one, being a light for the risen one, the position of this chapter comes into focus. And again, I don't have time really tonight, but you know, chapter 12 verse, and, and 14, let me say from the high-level view, this church in Corinth had a lot of issues. A lot of issues. Not good. They had, they had some good things, but, but they had a lot of things that needed to be corrected, that needed to be repented of, that needed to be flushed out and flushed down the drain, so to speak. They had divisions, divisive, you know, this group's better than this group, and they had infighting, which God hates. This goes, remember uh, Jacob's 12 sons? They didn't start out real good. They had a lot of infighting. They had a lot of issues. They had rivalry to the point they even sold one of the brothers. They had all kinds of issues, violence issues, sexual issues. And then it can happen in the church too. But they had divisions. They had, mis they had a misuse of grace. Things that they thought, we're so gracious, anything goes. We have churches in America like that. We're so gracious, do whatever you want. God says that's a path to hell and destruction. Uh, they had immorality. Some, not everybody. I mean, they had people that were following the Lord really well. But they had some immorality that had crept in. They had lack of unity. They had spiritual pride. This is all in the same church. They had a hierarchy of spiritual gifts where some people thought, my gift is way more important than your gift. Not true. They had selfishness, to name a few. And yet, this, here's some good news, and yet in all that, God was still working in that church. That blows my mind. God was still working in the Corinthian church, there was still some believers that were unspotted from the world and still walk. And we see this in Jesus' letter to the churches as well, that there were still some that were holding the line by God's grace and still walking faithful. There were some faithful saints even there. And, and the ones that weren't faithful, Paul is trying to pull back to where they need to be. That lo true love would be flowing from this church, not the world's definition. So a reset was needed, a restating of the truth that, that was needed uh, so that genuine faith, genuine faith would flourish in this church, resulting in Christ-likeness and Christ-honoring love. Christ-likeness in love and Christ-honoring love, not their definition of love, not the Greco-Roman definition of love. Now, two of the primary words... 
um, used for love, uh, of, I'm sorry, two, of these two primary, of agape and phileo. So of those two, and, and for all intents and purposes, they're the only two that are in the New Testament. So of those two, of those two words, some of your Bible, uh, agape um, is the only word that's used in chapter 13. So if you go home and you pull it up on a translator and say, is he correct on that? Yes, you're going to go home and find out that the word love every single time in the 13th chapter is always agape. It's not going to be phileo in the 13th chapter. Some of your Bibles, if you have a King James Version, it'll say charity. It won't say love, it'll say charity. But if you look at it in the Greek, charity or love, it'll still say agape in the 13th chapter. Paul uses the same word in 2 Thessalonians 1.3. We are bound to thank God always for you, brethren, as it is fitting, because your faith grows exceedingly, and the love, the agape, of every one of you abounds toward one another. That's what you want to hear. Abounding towards one another. You are lavishing each other in that agape love that we already saw the definition of, which is more sacrificial, which is less based on feelings. It's based on, I'm going to love you unconditionally. The scriptures tell us that the just, you guys know this word, the just to live by faith. So what is that word just? The just means the righteous, those that observe God's law, those that are truly in Christ. And so that's if we're taking kind of a, a panoramic view of the Old the New Testament, the word just, if you kind of look at it across the whole lens of Scripture, that's what it means. The righteous, made righteous, because we are not born right, we're made righteous, we're made by God to now observe his law uh, through the work of the Lord in us, and then we're truly in Christ. So the just will live by faith. Real faith will result in real love. Real faith will result in real love. Fake faith will result in fake love, a pseudo-love, something that is not the real thing. So what's essential in the presence of love, as we kind of wrap up tonight, uh, bring this to a close, what's essential in these first three verses uh, what's essential is that love is authentic. That's, that's what the point is being made. That love has to be authentic. It, that's why Paul takes this hyper-extreme. Even if you could move mountains but don't have the real thing, there is a problem. It has to be authentic. He takes this hyper-extreme of even if your body was burned but you didn't have love and you had something that was a substitute, the fake, can't help any of us. Nothing fake is really good for us, isn't it? You ever notice that? Uh, but it's amazing that Paul doesn't start off, he doesn't start off with some lewd description of worldly love uh, or some seemingly destructive form, form of pseudo-love. He starts with like incredible works, works that most of us have never dreamed of that. How many of you said, I can't wait to give my body to be burned? I have the kind of faith that moves mountains. I'm the only one in here that can do it. Well, that's kind of the point. Because somebody that thinks that way, there is a spirit of pride there. The spirit, Paul's like, if you have all this, you got it going on, you can do all these great things, but you don't have love, then the essence of that is 
is rooted in pride, even if they're great works. Uh, a martyr, for example, from another religion, let's say someone says, I am going to, um, I've seen people that are you know, like, wow, these Tibetan monks are on a hunger strike. That's impressive. Or uh, a Muslim uh, follower decides, I'm going to, you know, if I give up my life, it's going to be for Allah, right? You can exercise a kind of faith, but it won't be out of love. It would be out of duty or out of fear of that God or out of pride or, you know, dislike of the people that don't believe like you. So these would all be reasons, but they wouldn't be love. Even though they would be powerful expressions, Paul's like, that's not a guarantee that it was love. Paul of the Pharisees, remember we've been looking at the Pharisees a lot on Sunday mornings, Paul of the Pharisees, like him, might very well have had the tendency to say something like this. Maybe some of them did. We don't, we don't have this record of Paul, for example, but it wouldn't shock us if, if, if some of the Pharisees would say something along the lines of, hey, we'd rather be stoned than go in and eat a meal with the Gentiles. And mean it. To prove they're right. You've ever seen people that will literally cut off their hand despite their face? And Paul's like, even if you were doing all this to prove to everyone how righteous you were, it wouldn't earn you anything. It would not be biblical, scriptural love from the hand of, heart of God. It would be something that's counterfeit. It wouldn't profit you anything. It wouldn't profit anybody else either. It has to be love that transforms us. It has to be God's love that transforms the homes and the church and the world. Um, and by the way, agape is the only word used in the 13th chapter. But phileo is still in view and still very important. Matter of fact, phileo and agape are dovetailed. Sometimes Jesus refers to his love with God the Father as phileo. That him and the Father have a brotherly love. That's pretty powerful. If Jesus and the Father have a phileo love, they are very folded together. It's all, even though they're used um, in different... They are very interrelated and very connected. In other words, God doesn't want you to have agape or phileo. He wants you to have agape and phileo, even though agape is here. But phileo is still in view because um, as we wrap up, uh, do I have that? Yeah, as we wrap up tonight. Uh, oh, if you uh, go back to, turn your Bibles real quick, last thing, 1 Corinthians 16, 22, uh, where Paul says, if anyone does not have the love 1 Corinthians 16, 22. This is phileo right there. If anyone does not have the love, I'm sorry, if anyone does not love the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be accursed. Paul, that seems really, really judgmental. Let him be accursed. You know, but that is phileo. In other words, if anyone does not have a brotherly love for Jesus, in addition to agape, but if anyone doesn't have a brotherly love for the Lord, that you just kind of like want to walk and talk with the Lord. That kind of relationship. If anyone doesn't let him be accursed, doesn't mean that what it's what it really is saying is when you really become saved, God gives you a desire for a brother to love for Jesus. You want to walk and talk with him. You want to also give your life a living sacrifice and to uh, take up your cross. And so as we wrap up tonight and bring this to a close, I hope we all agree love is essential, but it must be, it's essential, but it has to be authentic. It has to come from the humble submission to Christ that then becomes a living sacrifice to Christ and then it comes with 
that love that God gives comes with a brotherly or sisterly love for those of you that are the ladies here tonight that is then poured out inside the body of Christ which keeps there from being all the schisms, divisions, and all the other things that creep in. So that's our overview tonight. Let's pray. Father, we thank you again for this time this evening. We pray, Lord Jesus, that uh, as we just uh, open your word, uh, Lord, you'd open us. And uh, Lord, that anything that would keep us from having a brotherly love for you, an agape love for you, a brotherly love and agape love for one another, Lord, that even as we learn these things, we receive them and apply them. And Lord, that you'd break down any of the hard places in us or things that have adopted the world's philosophy and replaced them, and you replace them by your spirit uh, with the things that are pure from your heart. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God bless you. Have a great rest of the night.